Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Donald Trump's pick to serve as the United States ambassador to the United Nations is unlike any other previous nominee for the U.S.-UN role. Kelly Knightcraft currently serves as the U.S. ambassador to Canada, a position she was conferred for the fact that her family are billionaire Republican donors. Her family controls a major coal company with deep roots in Kentucky. Now, it is not at all unusual for Democratic or Republican administrations to reward major donors with plum ambassador roles. For better or worse, that is just part of U.S. diplomatic tradition. But this is the first time that the U.N. ambassadorship is going to a major donor. And that fact sets up some really interesting political dynamics that were on display during Ambassador Kelly Kraft's confirmation hearing at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week. On the line with me to discuss how Kelly Kraft may fit in the role of U.N. ambassador is Richard Gowan. He is the U.N. director for the International Crisis Group and recently published a piece in Politico examining some of the key debates and diplomatic dynamics that the next U.S. ambassador to the U.N. may face. Coming into this nomination hearing, Ambassador Kelly Kraft did not have much of a foreign policy profile, particularly on issues related or relevant to the U.N., This conversation provides both a useful background into Kelly Craft herself and also investigates and examines some of the issues into which she'll be thrust should she secure confirmation. A quick note before we begin, big thank you to all of you who have become premium subscribers. Uh, thank you also for your feedback on the bonus episodes that I've been posting. I'm glad that you're finding them so valuable. Just keep sending me that feedback. I love hearing from you. You can reach me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Send me your thoughts on topics I should cover, people I should interview. I I love hearing from you. Don't hesitate. I I get all those emails. I read all those emails, and I reply to all of them as well. So thank you in advance. And now here is my conversation with Richard Gowan of the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think my first big takeaway from the hearing was that she appeared to be um, you know, like a, a conventional, normal Republican when it comes to 
UN issues. She was not an ideologue. She did not display like an overt hostility towards the UN. In fact, uh, just the opposite. She seemed to, you know, be premised on the idea that the UN could be like a useful tool to advance US interests. And even at one point, you know, cited Antonio Guterres as a great uh, partner with whom she could work to advance key issues around the reform agenda. She seemed to be positively disposed to the UN. And, you know, given this administration, um, Trump's pick for the UN ambassador could have gone either way. It could have been someone who approached the UN in a far more adversarial way, and, and she was not that. Uh, so that, at least, I think, for people around the UN ought to be a, a sigh of relief. I think that's true. And one thing you hear from people who interacted with her in her previous post as ambassador to Canada, is that she is a very decent and reasonable person to work with. There's been some criticism of her for not spending a lot of time in Ottawa when she was ambassador. But my understanding is that both her staff in the US embassy up there and also uh, Canadian officials and Canadian foreign policy experts uh, found her likable and approachable. And so that, I think, came through uh, in her behavior before the Senate. I think that she's also taking uh, quite a lot from the Nikki Haley playbook. Haley did this rather good job of being both on the side of Trump and tough on the UN in some ways, but still collegial and relatively moderate uh, behind the scenes. We understand from you know various hints that uh, Kraft and Haley have been comparing notes a good yeah. deal. Well, so um, some of the lines in the hearing were directly Nikki Haley lines, including the line about, uh, you know, how Antonio Guterres, no better partner in reform, something like that. Like that, that was sort of a direct Nikki Haley, um, uh, paraphrasing. Exactly. And it's also worth remembering that, um, Haley was very popular, uh, with Republican senators who I think found her version of internationalism, uh, quite palatable, uh, Kraft knows a lot of the same folk like Marco Rubio. And so, you know, she's playing very much in, in the same way towards towards the Senate. So, yes, mm -hmm. this, I think, was a relatively reassuring performance, yeah. uh, at least as far as um, Kraft's personality goes. Yeah. The, the big question that we all know is out there is, you know, how influential is Kraft in the era of John Bolton and Secretary Pompeo? Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely get into into that. Um like a second observation I had is that, you know, you know, like Haley, uh, both of them came to this hearing without much of a profile in foreign policy, at least as it came to the UN. So there was kind of like blank slates. I was really interested to learn, uh, you know, what, uh, Ambassador Kraft's vision for US UN relations is, what her vision about the UN is. Um, and, and she really did not articulate, at least to my view, much of that vision at all. She really didn't display, unlike Nikki Haley and her confirmation hearing, much of, of sort of an in-depth understanding of the key functions of the UN. And I think that is at least in part due to the fact that a lot of the questions posed to her did not deal directly with that substance. They were about other ancillary issues. 
um, which which we'll also get into. But it was, I think, moderately disconcerting that she didn't display that sort of facility um, and knowledge about key issues around the UN, at least in in the context of that hearing. I think it's. I think that's broadly fair. I mean, if you look at her testimony, the issue that she emphasised there was um, her her focus on humanitarian uh, issues. Now, she framed that partially in terms of uh, trying to spread the costs of UN humanitarian operations away from the US to other countries. But it was also, I think, a recognition on her part that uh, the UN's humanitarian role is relatively uncontroversial and may be uh, a big focus for her. And my sense is that in a period where the US position on a lot of political issues like Libya and Venezuela uh, in New York is controversial. And obviously the US position on climate change is very controversial. The safe topic uh, for Kraft to emphasize is humanitarian work, World Food Program, which is run by an American, UNICEF, which is run by an American. Those are things where she can she can major. She also said one thing that was very interesting at one point, which was that she doesn't actually expect to be in New York very long. Uh, she implied that yeah. she would only be in post for the rest of uh, the president's current. Term. That was interesting. I, I I did note that. So it, it seems it seems to me like she's she, she's not trying to set out an agenda that will last for for years. She's looking uh, for a few things that she can she can work on relatively uncontroversially. And as I say, that the humanitarian file is uh, is is always the most obvious one of those. So a final observation, and this gets into something you alluded to in your Politico piece, uh, was sort of an interesting political dynamic uh, unfolding in that Senate hearing. Um, you know, unlike any other previous U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Kelly Kraft is in that role because she is a major Republican donor. Um, and not only is she a major Republican donor, but she is from Kentucky and her family is good friends with Mitch McConnell, who introduced her at the hearing. And not only Mitch McConnell, but Rand Paul also is at the hearing. And he's interesting for the fact that he does not have foreign policy views that align with much of the rest of the Republican caucus. Yet he too expressed his uh, unreserved support for Kelly Craft. So, uh, furthermore, every single Republican obviously kind of lined up behind her. They all seem to know her pretty well for her role as a key Republican donor. The Democrats on the committee, I think, tried to make hay uh, around the fact that she was largely absent from her post in Ottawa during her tenure as U.S. Ambassador to Canada. I don't think that landed, and I think absent any you know, big controversy that we hadn't heard of. She'll sail through her nomination. So she'll take up her post at the UN, having this sort of key backdoor channel to key Republican lawmakers, particularly in the Senate, which I think sets up like a really interesting dynamic. We've never really seen that before, where you have a U.S. ambassador to the UN who has, you know, considerable sway over um, some you know, the, the politics of the Republican Party um, as, you know, for the fact that she's just a major donor, which I think sets up some really interesting wrinkles and, and dynamics that we can talk about. 
Yes, I think it's worth saying that Haley had very, very good relations on the Hill, as, as we alluded to, and with some of the same figures. And obviously, Haley actually used her high profile in New York to establish herself as a significant figure in Republican politics going forward. But you're right to say that Kraft is unusual in that you know, she has played a very important fundraising role in uh, you know, getting some of the senators she was talking to to where they are today. So she does have a lot of influence. And I think that is, that is especially interesting because no one is quite sure how much clout she is going to have with Washington as the US ambassador to the UN. Everyone has highlighted that whereas Nikki Haley was a member of Trump's cabinet, it seems that uh, Kraft will not have that privilege. And that clearly puts her at an institutional disadvantage. But it seems to me that she may actually be a more significant political actor than some give her credit for, precisely because she can go to McConnell, she can go to Rubio, uh, and not insignificantly, she can go to Pence, with whom she has a long-standing relationship. So she, you know, she may not have quite the institutional uh, locus that um, Haley had, but I, I don't think that she's uh, a tokenistic figure at all. No, I, I, I agree with. I, I definitely uh, agree with that. One thing I actually think that she'd rather do well in in excelling is in sort of being the UN's ambassador to the US, particularly to skeptical audiences or potentially skeptical audiences in, in Republican circles, because she does seem to have, again, that, that belief that the UN can and does do a lot of good around the world. And she does has the ability to command very powerful audiences, I think. That's true. And I'm sure that uh, it won't be very long before Security Council ambassadors find that they're being invited to Kentucky uh, and that they will sit down for a big bowl of, uh, I guess, fried chicken with um, McConnell. And actually, that sort of slightly folksy diplomacy uh, is quite helpful in terms of uh, US-UN relations. So, you know, hopefully she will, uh, she will major on that. One tiny point that I, I quite liked in her original testimony was that she made a shout out to the Toronto Raptors for um, uh, winning the basketball, which shows that she has quite a nice sense of how to, um, uh, you know, to link to the foreign players that she's dealing with. I would also want to note before we, we kind of go on to like the context in which she'll be entering at the UN, which is a substance of, of your piece, uh, an actually really interesting wrinkle from the hearing, probably like the most newsworthy newsworthy part of the, the hearing was that she said she would recuse herself from conversations about coal and climate change because you know, of her family's billion dollar investments in, in coal energy. That'll be sort of interesting to see how that sort of actually plays out. Um, but it, it sort of was an interesting recognition uh, of a, an appearance of, of conflict of interest here. Well, I think even you know, sort of even before we get to that, one of the most striking parts of the hearing was that she did actually uh, state that she sees climate change as a, a man-made threat, and in the past, perhaps because of her links to the coal industry. Kraft has been pretty wishy-washy on climate. At one point, she said she appreciated 
both sides of the science, which doesn't really mean anything. Um, but here she came out and she said, no, climate change is a, a real threat and we have to do things about it. Uh, now, that I think actually slightly defanged one potential democratic uh, attack line against her, which is that she's a climate change denier. Um, but, you know, it was a significant statement. She tempered it by saying that she would not support any policies that threatened US jobs. So she didn't go that far. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was a significant concession and will be appreciated, I think, by a lot of diplomats here. On the, on the, on the specific promise not to um, engage in negotiations involving coal, uh, you know, that was a, a good gambit, I think. It's not really substantively very significant because the US ambassador to the UN doesn't normally engage in the nitty gritty of climate negotiations, even if they happen under the UN umbrella. There is a big climate summit coming up uh, under the auspices of that, auspices of Antonio Guterres in New York in September. I guess that coal might come up in that context, but the US is not actually really engaging with that process anyway. So it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty moot. So, for the last about six months now, there has been no um, uh, appointed U.S. ambassador to UN. There's been an acting ambassador to the UN, Jonathan Cohen, who is about to be the U.S. ambassador to Egypt. Can you sort of describe the diplomatic context that should she be um, voted on, should she be uh, approved, Kelly Craft will be entering when she sets foot in Turtle Bay? Well, it's a mess. And the fact that there has been oh, no, <laughs> the fact that there has been no, uh, you know, full-time politically appointed permanent representative has been a real problem for the U.S. Because under Haley, the U.S. mission to the U.N. U.S. UN was a relatively happy ship. Diplomats actually quite liked working for Haley. When uh, Haley had big disagreements with Washington. Uh, she could go to, you know, she could put a call through to the White House to make her position known. Since Haley left, it's been striking that USUN has uh, lost a lot of that leverage. And in many situations, for example, regular conversations about the ceasefire in, in Yemen, US diplomats are frustrating their counterparts because they simply don't have instructions on what to say in negotiations. They simply don't know what Washington wants. And so the US can't contribute uh, at any level, really, to uh, those those processes. Now, the nature of power at the UN is such that if the US isn't engaging, uh, a lot of diplomacy, at least in the Security Council, just dies because the Security Council can't act without they're like, what's the point the in even discussing a Yemen ceasefire if we don't know if the U.S. will support this or not? Like exactly. that, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, this is remarkable. It's something that uh, I've discussed not only with uh, U.S. allies, but actually with uh, countries from Asia and Africa that uh, instinctively don't, you know, support U.S. positions. But even diplomats from those countries say, we need an ambassador. We, we miss Haley. Because without a significant player at the top of US-UN, uh, we can get nothing done. Now, that's not, by the way, a criticism of Jonathan Cohen, who's a, a very, very good diplomat, who's very well liked. It's just that he doesn't have quite the, um, you know, 
prestige that Haley had. But we've seen this um, over Libya too. Uh, the UK really, really wanted a resolution um, calling for a ceasefire in Libya after the situation imploded there in April of this year. The US would not engage. And there was a sense then that um, that disengagement was a very deliberate tactic uh, by some people in Washington uh, who wanted to uh, keep the UN away from uh, the battle in in Libya. Well, by some people, presumably this is John Bolton, who uh, is supporting yeah. the uh, renegade general Khalifa Haftar um, exactly. in a seeming reversal of US position and backing, which the US had sort of previously backed the UN-backed government of National Accord, the GNA. It's you know one of those situations where people around the UN that I talk to have no idea what the US policy is on, on Libya right now. But, it, it, but, exactly. but, well, but would installing even uh, a politically appointed UN ambassador change that at all? Well, not necessarily, because Bolton is going to Bolton, as it were. You know, the the reality is that the national security advisor uh, has much more influence than um, the US ambassador to the UN. Uh, that, was, that was actually only uh, probably the only time when that wasn't true recently was in the... Um, the Haley period when McMaster was uh, NSA, but McMaster was very close to Haley, so they were sort of, they were peers. Um, Bolton uh, de facto outranks Kraft. Bolton understands the UN extremely well, and he is going to, I think, try to drive the majority of uh, US policy in New York, and he is obviously a nationalist and um, uh, a spoiler. So, um, however, however, uh, because of the political connections we were talking about, I do think that if it gets really bad, Kraft will be able to go back to Pence, go back to McConnell and say, uh, you know, this is not right. I need at a minimum to have the instructions and have the leeway to represent the US with dignity. And I think that will... Uh, you know, that will at least create some impetus for America to, to clean up its diplomacy at the UN a little. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, you can foresee on some of the big issues around the Security Council that capture the attention of the White House, like Iran, which is obviously coming to, to a head or, or anything really having to do with the Middle East. You know, the White House will be squarely driving the, the agenda there. Uh, but are there areas you could foresee that Kraft would be able to, um, you know, put her own mark, put her own stamp, be able to sort of shift or, or drive policy in a meaningful way? Um, so I think I can, I can see a few where she might be able to make a mark. One uh, interesting aspect of the confirmation hearing linking to this emphasis on humanitarian concerns was that she talked about the Rohingya refugees and the need to uh, assist them. And it's possible that she may be able to uh, take up the, the Myanmar file, at least in terms of uh, attempting to find some way to improve the lot of those um, uh, very unfortunate people who've been driven out of Myanmar. Um, I think that it's probable that she will have a leeway over most African issues. You know, Haley found uh, that she was able to get stuff done on South Sudan 
and the Congo without much interference from from DC. And I suspect that Kraft will also have some leverage over those. I think the Yemen case is interesting, actually. I, you know, Yemen is it's a highly complex issue, not least because of the Saudi uh, the Saudi interests. But if there is any hope of getting any progress towards peace agreements in, in Yemen, which is very unclear, then Kraft might be able to invest uh, a little more focus and energy on on that, because at least on paper, the U.S. really wants the, the peace process to work. Is there anything um, in the coming weeks or, or months that you that will sort of illuminate for listeners or for any UN watchers what kind of U.S. ambassador she'll be? I think there are two and a half uh, major tests for craft on the horizon. And we just talked about the things where she would have some leeway. Unfortunately, the big tests are ones where she she won't necessarily have very much autonomy at all. And the first of them is the rollout of uh, the Trump administration Middle East peace plan, the plan that Jared Kushner has been working on uh, for Israel and Palestine. Now, we have pretty clear indications by this point that the plan makes virtually no mention of the UN and specifically doesn't uh, respect past UN resolutions endorsing a two-state solution for Israel and Palestine. And if that plan drops, which is something we'd expected very soon, but has been held up uh, because of the difficulties in forming a government in Israel, if that plan drops and it really ignores the UN, then Kraft will face an enormous amount of blowback uh, here in New York. She's likely to face Security Council and General Assembly resolutions uh, insisting on the continued validity, um, almost sanctity of past resolutions on the two-state solution. She may have to cast a veto in the Security Council to um, to block criticism of the U.S. You know, Haley went through something very similar over Jerusalem in 2017, and that would be a big, big test for Kraft to see um, could she handle that relatively maturely, uh, could she deal with other diplomats in a way that stood up for U.S. positions but didn't alienate everyone else. So that's that's going to be one major test. And she said in her hearing that she hasn't seen the peace plan. So she's walking into that situation pretty blind at the moment. The second, I think now sadly almost guaranteed test, is Iran. And the uh, the fact is, is that there are very few countries in the Security Council, including uh, U.S. allies, that are very sympathetic to the U.S. position on Iran at the moment. There was a closed-door meeting of the Security Council now around 10 days ago to discuss the attacks on uh, tankers in the Gulf. And from what I have heard, most diplomats used that meeting really to urge restraint on all parties, by which one means restraint, restraint on, on the US. And so there's a you know, the situation in the Gulf continues to deteriorate. We've heard today that the Iranians shot down a US drone. There's a, a real risk that Kraft may have to go to the council and try and justify US pressure on, on the Iranians. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying justify a war with Iran, although that's what some 
some diplomats here believe it's coming, but at least just justify the, the yeah. current US strategy towards Iran. And that will be awfully difficult because um, there's not a lot of backing for that from other countries. So those are two big challenges. The half challenge um, is something that could happen, but uh, we, we just don't know if and when it will, which is some sort of flare up on the Korean peninsula. Yeah. And, you know, Haley's single greatest achievement as US ambassador to the UN was to shepherd through a series of sanctions resolutions on DPRK in 2017 uh, with the Chinese. And if things start to go very bad in relations with DPRK at any point, the US is likely to turn back to the UN and say, right, we want more sanctions. And that would be an enormous test for Kraft, not least because quite a lot of diplomats here don't think the Chinese and Russians are as willing to uh, actually as as willing to compromise as they they were two years ago. All right. Well, you've given us a, a lot to look out for. Thank you, as always, Richard. This is very helpful. Thank you. Uh, and as, as always, pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Richard Gowan, as always. And yeah, again, thank you all for uh, becoming premium subscribers. It's helping the show. And I'm glad that you're enjoying these bonus episodes. I have now about um, 12 of them released. And these are all long form interviews with kind of famous people in the foreign policy world who discuss their life and career with digressions about some of the historic foreign policy events in which their life and career intersected. Um, As I said, I've already posted about 12 of these. I'll post one or two uh, of these a week uh, available for premium subscribers. And another key bonus that is available to premium subscribers is access to my global news clips service, Don's Digest. This is an early morning email that lands in your inbox that offers a pretty pithy yet comprehensive summary of key news from around the world that often doesn't make headlines. All right. Um, Be in touch. Bye.